you have your Bibles with you, why don't you grab them? We'll be in Matthew chapter 8. And I just add my word of welcome to you this morning. I'm glad that you have joined us as we worship our awesome God, our, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who died on the cross for us, who rose again on the third day, and who now is exalted in heaven, and who is coming back at the end of the age to set all things right. What a, what a good day it is, this Lord's day, to gather together and to worship our Lord together. And now we're going to continue doing that by exalting in God's word and what God's word has to say. And to, to do that, I've taken as a text Matthew 8, um, verses 18 through 22. And I want to read that, and then I want to pray for the Lord's continued help. So the word of God says, Now when Jesus saw the crowd around him, he gave orders to go to the other side, And a scribe came up and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes, and the birds have air, uh, the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And another disciple said to him, Lord, let, let me first go bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Follow me. And leave the dead to bury their own dead. Father, we come to you this morning grateful and yet needy. Grateful that you are our Savior, that you have sent the Son of God, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, to take on our sin for us. To pay it in full. To satisfy your just and righteous wrath against us. And to justify us through faith in him. To make us so that we are forever the righteousness of Christ. That we stand before you. And we will stand on that day, that judgment day. Not with merit of our own in our hands. But with the merit of Christ as a robe. I pray that you would ground our hearts continually in that gospel. In that good news our trust and our confidence, our our passion for life, all of those things would be rooted in the gospel, this hope that you have given us through Christ. Father, I pray for this time together in your word. And Lord, I pray uh, that you would help me to preach your word as a dying man to dying people so that we might see what is truly worth having in this life. And that we might count the cost of following Christ. Lord, I I pray for people who have come here this morning. Not understanding the grace that you have shown us in Christ. I pray for your mercy this morning and your grace on them. That you will open eyes to to the gospel. And that they might believe and trust in Christ. And I pray for those in this room who are going through a particularly hard time, a hard season in life. And I know that there are several at least in this room. Lord, I I pray that you would would give them strength today and courage from your word. That they would see the hope that is here in following Christ. And they would have joy in their hardship. 
I pray that you would encourage people who are discouraged. And Lord, I pray for those who are haughty before you today. Lord, may you again by your grace and in your mercy bring a humbling so that we might turn to Christ by faith with hope, looking away from ourselves, repenting of our sin, and trusting in Christ alone. And then lastly, Father, I pray for those who, who have qualified discipleship with something um, that they have put there as a place they will serve you if. Lord, I pray that you'd strike it all down. I pray, Lord, that those who, who have been kind of on the like fence when it comes to you would get off of that fence and follow Jesus and not waste their life. So do that work, Father. I, I need your help. I can't do any of that. Your spirit can. And so I pray, Father, do that work. In Jesus' name, amen. Have you ever caught yourself saying or maybe even or heard somebody say the phrase, um, this is not what I signed up for? I have, and I've heard it in many contexts, my personal life, missions, um, my counseling ministry, and I've, I've said it too. I, I've heard it and I've said it. Here are three examples, um, kind of a composite of examples, I guess, but uh, one is in missions. Lots of full-time missionaries get their start in, as short-term missionaries. Um, that's how it was for me. I was a short-term missionary first and then a full-time missionary. But um, people go on short-term trips. Lots of you have gone on short-term mission trips. Lots of you have just gone on short-term mission trips and just returned, right? <laughs> so lots of you have gone on those and you know what they're like. Um, there's something very special about a short-term mission trip. Usually you go to somewhere sunny and green <laughs> and the experience, and you go with other people and it's exciting and it often lead you to think, man, I want to go back there. I want to go and I want to serve Jesus for the rest of my life in that place. And I have seen many people start that way and then find that there's something profoundly different between serving short-term somewhere and serving long-term. Like there's something profoundly different between like serving with a, a, a team of other excited college students, never staying in one place long enough to truly encounter problems, and then serving somewhere full-time, seeing the good and the bad and the ugly of a place and of a people and of a culture, often feeling rejection or getting sick or struggling to get along with your coworkers. Most people don't see that coming. Losing home support, struggling with your leadership, the decisions that they're making and having difficulty with immigration and those kind of things. In those kind of seasons, I've heard missionaries say, that's not what I signed up for. Another example, uh, as many of you know, I engage in uh, marital counseling a lot, uh, particularly in what we refer to as crisis marriage counseling, helping couples through really difficult seasons in their marriages, um, walking them towards healing from hurts and dealing with things in healthy ways and so often a, a couple struggles through the difficulties of communicating with one another with frequent and loud intense fights and with simmering anger and zero affection and differing ideas on what to do with the children and money and how to use time and then lots of bells are rung and 
water under the bridge. And I hear often with a sigh of exhaustion, that's not what I signed up for. Here's a third. I've been in pastoral ministry for a while now, um, about 15 years. I've, I, I've heard, I've been around pastors a long time. I know a lot of pastors. I know a lot of pastors. I, I talk to them. I counsel pastors who are going through especially hard times in ministry. Um, after a particularly grueling year when people that a pastor has given his life to serve have turned on him and begun to doubt his motives and criticize him unfairly, after people that he thought were his friends have betrayed him and he goes through a relational winter, as it were, feeling friendless, alone, unliked, I've heard many a pastor say, that's not what I signed up for. The issue with really all three of those examples is what the person was dreaming about when he signed up. That's the issue. You see, the thing is, we seldom envision the hard things when we dream. I don't know if you know this, but if you, if you remember a particularly fond place in your life, bring it back to mind, you're, you probably remember like sunshine and green grass. You know what I mean? And that's how we remember things. The, the former short-term missionary who excitedly runs through his training to get to the field has in mind sunny and green places. He's thinking of receptive people, a unified and like-minded team of missionaries working with him and fruitful interactions and baptisms and discipleship and the joy of the Lord in his work. They seldom think about conflicts and hardships and discouragement, rejection and difficulties associated with living in different cultures and climates and under different dominant languages. They, they dream of sunshine and green grasses. And premarital couples, I get this a lot. I, I do a lot of premarital counseling. They sit in my office and they barely even listen to me as I talk about what marriage is going to be like because they're so giddy in love with one another. They can't imagine any hardships being like real in marriage. They don't imagine sustained strife or just other kind of difficulties. They, they think of sunshine and grass, green grass. And seminary students who dream of preaching the word of God and shepherding people who will in turn respond with faithfulness and joy and just be the church. They know church conflict exists sometimes and they know that pastors are often unliked. They just can't fathom that being them. We dream of sunshine and green grass, not cold and bitter winters of hardship. And here's the danger. Sometimes it is the sunshine and the green grass that we're actually signing up for. It is the sunshine and green grass that we really want. Now, Jesus has a word for us in that this morning. I found it, while incredibly convicting, very good for my soul. It must not be the sunshine and green grass that we sign up for. It must be Jesus and Jesus alone. In our passage, there are two men trying to sign up to follow Jesus at some level. And Jesus makes it piercingly clear up front with shocking language, the cost of following Christ. As we walk through this, I want you to consider what you have signed up for as a Christian, as a believer, as a disciple, and I want you to think about before the Lord why you have signed up for it and what that signing up might cost you and how that signing up will bless you. 
I think you will find it good for your soul too. Let's let Jesus graciously shock us with these two interactions. So the first guy comes to Jesus and he makes this eager and enthusiastic pronouncement. Look at verse 19. A scribe came up and said to him, teacher, respectful customary way to talk to, Je- to talk to somebody who you consider a teacher of God's law. Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. So a scribe, he's a teacher of the law himself. Um, so we can assume that this fellow had some real training. He'd been to seminary, as it were. He saw, he saw in Jesus something profound, though. Like a lot of scribes were rejecting Jesus outright. A lot of Pharisees were just not even, you know, they were just, they didn't want anything to do with Jesus. This man saw something profound. And it's not hard to imagine that, right? Like if you, if you recall the weeks that we've been studying Matthew lately, profound things were happening. Jesus had just preached the Sermon on the Mount and people were astonished at his authority. And then in, in, in this chapter, chapter eight, Matthew eight, at every turn, Jesus is healing people. I mean, wild things are happening. Crowds are, like it says right in our, the, the crowds are all around Jesus. This is an exciting time. Crowds were around him. Things were happening. Demons were responding like demons to Jesus's word, responding with obedience. Things were happening. Lepers and a Roman servant finding healing at the word of Christ and by his will. It's not hard for me to imagine a young, glassy-eyed scribe who, who, who genuinely loved the Torah and who witnessed these things and could tell clearly that there was something like genuinely amazing about Jesus. It's not hard for me to imagine his enthusiasm that would lead him to go to proclaim to Jesus, wherever you go, like you go across this lake, I'm going with you. You go down to Jerusalem, I'm there. Wherever you go, I'm gonna go with you. I'm 100% in, I'm on your team. Only perhaps he might not have understood what that would mean. And Jesus wanted him to know what that would mean. And so he says in verse 20, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the son of man does not have a place to lay his head. When Jesus is say, what Jesus is saying is that whatever the scribe was envisioning, he needs to see clearly that there is a sense in which foxes and birds have it better than Jesus had it then. He wants the scribe to know that if, he was, he's, if he's signing up for glamour or prestige of being with Jesus, of being this exciting movement, he should know it's a difficult path. It's full of hardship. It's full of rejection. It's full of coldness. At the very end of this chapter, the people would urge Jesus to leave the region. When you get to the end of Matthew 8, the people are coming out, not, not to welcome Jesus, but to say, would you please leave? Have you ever been urged to leave a region? Like, people want you to go. Jesus' ministry would not be full of glamour and prestige and comfort. It would be full of hardship and rejection and no place for the Son of Man to lay his head. So, scribe, if you are thinking that following me will be sunshine and green grass, you need to understand something. In some senses, foxes and birds have it better than I have it, Jesus is saying to him. Are you willing to live your life in a way that is worse in some senses than foxes and birds? 
because that's what following me costs. That's what you're signing up for. I mean, what a contrast. What I mean is, what a contrast between the way we talk about following Jesus and the way that Jesus talks about following Jesus. Do you know what I mean? Maybe we're just better salespeople than he is. Come, be a part of our church. It's amazing. Just hear the worship. It'll blow your mind. Here you'll be, it's such a friendly group. You'll be loved and accepted and a sense of family and purpose and meaning for your life. You'll be cared for. It's amazing. You want to be a part of this. It's not a bad way to talk about church and those things are true. But what about the very real costs of following Jesus? What about the cost? That's what Jesus doesn't shy back from. We shy back from it, you know? like a good real estate agent who's, who, who leads out by saying, it's a very charming house, right? Alarm shirt going off, right? It's a charming house. The roof is sagging or something, you know, but it's charming. Or they say location. It's a great location. Jesus doesn't shy back from saying the cost. He, he, he says there's a cost here. We don't typically say in our evangelism, come follow Jesus. If you do, people will think that you're crazy. There'll be people in your life who will write you off. Your values will go right into the face of the world's values and conflict. And you will stand out and not in a good way. At least not in the world's eyes. You'll be called a hater when you're actually trying to love people. You'll be scorned. You'll, you, you may suffer real loss. Your family may turn on you. Your spouse may reject you. You may get fired from your job. You may get your head cut off. Come. It's amazing. And costly. That's what Jesus is saying in this passage. It is costly to follow Christ. Now, I want you to think with me a bit here as we consider the, 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 the freeness of the gospel and the costliness of discipleship. Because I don't want these things to be confused in our mind. I don't want you to leave here thinking that there is some cost that you can pay that would merit your standing with God. Paul called Jesus' complete work on the cross, his substitutionary death and his resurrection, the free gift of God. The whole nature of what Christ did on Calvary's tree was to freely save all those who believe, right? So Romans 6.23 says, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God, it's actually one word in the Greek, but that's the idea, free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. We don't earn eternal life. We, we earn death because of sin. Like the wage that we've earned is it's death for, for sin. We don't earn anything before God. It is only by the grace of God that we are saved. Thus to the scribe, Jesus is not saying, for your merit before God, Mr. Scribe, you must come and live worse than foxes and worse than birds for a season. 
No, there's no payment that we could pay that would merit for us eternal life. We come to him needy. We come to him with our hands empty, looking to his gracious work alone on the cross. Salvation is by grace alone. Jesus bids us freely to come to him, find life in him. He paid, he paid. Okay, it wasn't all free, right? Grace is not free. It's free to us. It wasn't free to Jesus. He paid a gigantic cost for that grace to be administered to you and to me. The cross is what he paid so that you can find life in him freely by his grace. But here's the thing, okay? And here's the the rub when it comes to how we put these two things together. Realizing that salvation in our lives, like letting that salvation have its, like working its way out in our lives costs everything. We repent of our sin. We turn and renounce our old ways. We die to ourself. We live by control, the control of the life-giving spirit of God in us. We deny ourselves. We pursue holiness. In short, the gospel, which is free, when it captures our heart, costs everything. It is the free gift that costs everything. One of my favorite scholars, D.A. Carson, said it really well um, in his commentary on the Sermon on the Mount. So try as I read this to keep these two sides straight. The the freeness of the gospel and the, the costliness of discipleship. Those are the two sides I want to help us work out, okay? So here's what Carson said. He says, in one sense, our salvation costs us absolutely nothing. In, other, in another, it costs us not less than everything. The, the former is true because Jesus paid it all. The latter is possible because Jesus enables us to respond to the upward call. Those who stress the, the, the latter and neglect the former never learn that salvation is by grace alone. Those who stress the, 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 the former and neglect the latter Here's why I want you to hear me here. Those who neglect that it's, it's uh, costly. Those who stress the former and neglect the latter may buy a cheap facsimile of grace that knows nothing or little of the biblical gospel. The authentic Jesus makes demands that are personal and costly. You follow? This is the free gift that costs Everything. So let's not mix this up, friends. Jesus paid it all. He went to the cross to pay your sin debt. He died for your justification. And Jonathan Edwards said it really well. He says, you contribute nothing to your salvation except the sin that makes it necessary. Nothing. Jesus paid it all. You come to him with empty hands and faith alone and his work alone. It is free to come to Jesus. Yet the gospel demands on your life as you turn to him in genuine faith cost everything. It demands, as the hymnist of old said, when I quoted last week, it demands my life, my soul, my all. Jesus did not shy away from that cost when this scribe came enthusiastically professing his devotion to Jesus, professing that he would follow Jesus wherever he went. He didn't shy back from the cost. Now let's think together about this for a moment, okay? Because I want you to really wrap your mind around this. Like, if it's true that the Son of Man has no place to lay his head and following Jesus means 
potentially no place to lay your head like Christ? If that is true, why would anyone follow him? Why? What would motivate you to follow Jesus if it meant not an easier life, but a far harder one? Not a more prosperous life, but a more difficult, trying life. Not easy, but really hard. What would motivate you? I mean, think about it, like in these terms. What, what if it meant that you were to be homeless? What if it meant being single the rest of your life? What if it meant living in a really hard place with a really harsh climate and with dangerous illnesses and with mean people? What if it meant giving up your career, the one that you have worked so hard to get into? What if it meant living less comfortably than a fox or a bird? You know, we don't know how this scribe responded to Jesus, but if he were to still say, wherever you go, I will follow you, even after Jesus said, foxes have birds, foxes and birds have it better, then he could only be doing that because he genuinely saw that having Jesus is better than having comfort. In one sense, those who follow Jesus have it worse than foxes and birds. And in another sense, they would have it better than the richest, most comfortable people in the world. Because they would have Jesus. That's the point. Jesus is the treasure to be had. And a lot of Christians mess this up. He is the treasure. He is not merely the means to the treasure. He is the treasure. Doesn't matter whether this journey with him is pleasant or rough. We don't sign up to follow Jesus for the creature comforts. We sign up to follow Jesus so that we might have Jesus. I don't know how this scribe responded, but I know how another scribe responded. And I want to I read that. I just decided like 20 minutes ago that I wanted to read this, but it's Philippians chapter 3, verses 7 through 10. I think I did get it. On the computer though. Yeah, three, seven through 10. This is how another scribe responded. A scribe, a Pharisee who, like the gospel had transformed his life. It had, it had captured his heart. He had met the Lord Jesus. And he, he, he weighed like in real time, like his life and the things that he used to value and Jesus. And one he found wanting and one he found to be a treasure. So Philippians 3, 7 says, but whatever gain I had, I counted loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because, listen to this language, of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him, that I may know him. This is why it's worth it, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. I think Jesus wanted that scribe to know that he was signing up, not for the glamour, not for the crowds, not for the prestige. He'd be signing up for Christ and he'd have to know that. 
but Christ is worth signing up for. So that's the first guy who came to Jesus, the scribe. The second guy who comes to him has a different angle altogether, and Jesus responds a, a bit differently. Matthew calls him a disciple, actually calls him another disciple, which makes me think that both of these guys were, in one sense, disciples already. But he calls this guy a disciple, so there's a sense in which he's already following Jesus. But he comes and he says to Jesus, let me first go and bury my father. Now that sounds perfectly reasonable. It's an every man request in a sense, right? Let me go take, Sarah, take care of something that's important and something personal. And then, with that out of the way, I will come and follow you, Jesus. I mean, you almost expect Jesus to say, right, yeah, go do that, friend. I will see you in a few months. But Jesus responds with words that were meant to shock him and you and me. And help us again see what we've signed up for. He says, follow me and let the dead bury their dead. Now, there's some footnotes that I want to add to this story. They're my own footnotes, I guess, but I I don't want us to read this wrongly. I've got two of them. Footnote number one is that we don't actually know precisely what this man is asking, okay? Whether Whether the request is to go bury his dead father, who just died, like to a funeral, or whether it is to take his leave to go be with his father while he is ailing and he will eventually die. Both of those are ways that person in that society would have said, let me go bury my father. It could have meant both. It could have meant either, rather. He wanted to go do what a dutiful son does for his father. I think that's, it's the latter. I think his, his dad was probably ill and he was feeling the weight of the illness of his dad and he thought, I want to follow you, Jesus, but I really need to attend to this. Let me go do that first. And then when he's dead and buried, I'll, I'll come back and I'll find you and I'll follow you. So whichever though, the focus is an earthly task and, that, and this man and, and, and his society thought that task was important. So that's the first footnote. The second one is we, we know what Jesus is not teaching by this. Okay, this is my second footnote. We know what Jesus is not saying when he says, leave the dead to bury their dead. It's worth discussing this just so we don't get this wrong. Jesus is not saying it is okay to abdicate our earthly responsibilities to our earthly family. That's not what he's saying. And I know that because of other things that Jesus says, even in Matthew. He is not teaching us that we don't have to care for ailing parents or that things like family funerals are unimportant. Again, and like if you were, I'm not going to go there, but if you were to go to Matthew 15, you'd see Jesus calling out the Pharisees for doing exactly that, for having this religious reason for not taking care, not following the law and honoring their parents. And he calls them out. In fact, he says, you do that because your heart is far from God. Not because you love the gospel and you love the truth. So don't misread Jesus in Matthew 8. He's not teaching that a disciple is more spiritual to ignore his family relationships or that we can ignore our family responsibilities in the name of following Christ. It's not his point here. It's two footnotes. So what is Jesus teaching? I think he's making it clear that this man's desire to do something important first and whatever important things we put first 
in our desire, before our desire to follow Christ is not something that spiritually alive people do. Leave the spiritually dead to bury their physical dead. You come and follow me. Jesus is first, not those things. In fact, Jesus teaches later that he comes before all earthly family. Now, lest you think that you can't relate to that, I think this is like right where the rub is. Like, I think we should consider our priorities. When will we follow Christ? What is it that we must do first before we follow Jesus? What do you love first? What it, I think that's the essence of the question, and that's the bold point that Jesus is making. The spiritually dead in this world put those sort of things first. True disciples, those who genuinely follow Christ, put him first. Listen to how Jesus, listen to how shockingly Jesus puts this in Matthew chapter 10. Matthew 10, 37 through 39, Jesus says, whoever loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves sons or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. I think what Jesus is teaching is that qualified or conditional discipleship is not real Discipleship. In fact, I think if you put these two examples together, these, these two men who piously come to Jesus only to be surprised and shocked by Jesus' response, I think his point is unmistakable. If your devotion to Christ comes after your devotion to anything else, to your work, to your well-being, even to your family, you are doing what spiritually dead people do not what true followers of Christ do. Do you follow me? Or to put it another way, qualified or conditional discipleship is no discipleship at all. If I have conditions in front or after the statement, I will follow Jesus. Like if there's any condition there, it is not true discipleship. I will follow Jesus so long as I have my needs met and it's not too hard for me. Not real discipleship. Not real. I will follow Jesus so long as I can still do the things that I want to do. I will follow Jesus so long as this person can be in my life. I will follow Jesus so long as I can go first bury my dead. Qualified discipleship. It's not true discipleship. That's what Jesus is teaching us. When we sign up to follow Christ... We sign up to follow Jesus, period. I want to wrap this up with one story. I don't know if you'll find it helpful or not. It's actually a personal story for me. Back when I was a missionary in Siberia, it, it was a time I remember very clearly saying, that's not what I signed up for and how the Lord used it to do what I think this passage is doing. So it was my first or second year living in Siberia. Uh, I don't know, maybe you don't know. I was a missionary in Siberia for, for, for many years with my wife, Maya. We church planted there. One winter day, as I was coming back, I, I, was, I was at the market, uh, and I was, I, was, I was making my way back from the market uh, with a bunch of 
groceries, you know, shopping is way different. I know it's even hard probably for you to imagine, but I had this huge load of food and I didn't have a car, I, so I used public transportation. So I, they, they were all in bags. It was, it was the middle of winter. It was really cold, like really cold, like Siberia cold. And I was freezing and somebody was super rude to me in the market, like just said a terrible thing to me in the market. Like things were not going well that day. You know what I mean? Like, and then I'm looking around, everything looks dirty to me. Like you ever get in that kind of funk? Like everything is nasty. Everybody is rude. And just to top it off, it's like God was like doing this on purpose. <laughs> but I, we, I go to catch my marshutka, which is the, like these mini buses that they had to get around the city. It was a big city, 500,000 people. Uh, we, we use these mini buses to get around and you had to have a seat on it. That was the law. You had, there had to be enough seats for everybody to sit down. You couldn't. And so I go to catch my mini bus uh, and this guy jumped right in front of me and pushed me out of the way and took the last seat on that minibus. And I had to wait 20 more minutes in the freezing cold for my minibus to come, okay? So I, I know, I'm, I, I get my minibus. I, get, I, I finally get home. Um, I, I, I put the food away and I'm, I'm by the radiator. I remember this like it was yesterday. I'm thawing my hands out. You know that pain that you feel when your hands are thawing out? I'm thawing my hands out and I'm thinking, and I'm saying out loud, Maya wasn't there. I don't know where she was. It's probably part of the reason too. You were not there. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm, just kidding. <laughs> I'm thinking, this is not what I signed up for. I came to Siberia not for this, like not to be yelled at by immigration officials and scorned and rejected. I didn't, I didn't come there to try to help other missionaries get along. All those things I was doing, I didn't go there for that. I remember saying just out loud, I didn't sign up for this. And it's as if God said, not out, you know, in my heart, you know, I didn't know voices, but it's like he said, what pray tell did you sign up for, Mike? Why did you come to Asia? Do you come for a bed of ease? Do you come for the prestige of saying you're a missionary in Siberia? Do you come because you thought the people would just lay down their paganism and trust in Christ and there'd be a revival and they'd throw you up in the air? Why'd you come? And I felt like a fool because I had come to Asia for Jesus. I signed up for all of it, all of it. And much worse, I never really suffered there. I haven't really suffered in my life. Most of us don't really pay that high of a cost in reality. I signed up for all of it and much worse. I signed up for Jesus. I hope I'm still signing up for him. Friends, he is worth it. He's worth it all. He's worth frozen hands and rude people and dirty cities and hard pastoral ministries. He's worth feeling friendless among your classmates. He's worth the rejection that you feel because you follow Jesus. He's worth the rejection. He's worth the gossip and the slander and the, the mean comments. He's worth what spiritually dead people do to you. He's worth it. 
Losing that successful career, he's, he's worth missing that nice home. He's worth not having that comfortable retirement. Jesus is worth more than the acceptance of a father and a mother and a husband and a wife and a friend. Jesus is worth more than being popular. He's worth more than being accepted or liked. He's worth more than being healthy. He's worth more than being safe. Jesus is better. He's worth it all. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Let's pray. Father, I I pray for those who are here and I pray for me, I pray for us. I pray that you would help us, Father, to count the cost and to see Jesus and the surpassing worth of having Christ. Well, to see that as surpassing. And I pray we would come to Christ freely on the, on the basis and the merit of Jesus alone and be willing to pay whatever cost for Jesus is better. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.